0: You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 49 is Scott McCoy. Yes, that is how it's pronounced. It's not McCaughey. Scott fronts the Seattle band, The Young Fresh Fellows. They put their first album out in 1983, were very active through the early 90s, still have not officially broken up, having put out 13 albums. You are right now listening to two lives from their second album, in 1985's Topsy Turvy. From 1994 through 2011, he was a member of R.E.M., playing both on tour and in the studio. And at that time, he launched what is now his main songwriting vehicle, the Minus 5, a studio project featuring him and usually R.E.M. guitarist Peter Buck. They have put out 11 albums, including collaborative albums with Wilco and the Decemberists. and today we're going to be talking about In the Ground from their 2015 release, Dungeon Golds, and then looking back to their first album, All the Time, from 1995's Old Liquidator. And then we'll jump forward again to Waymer Never Dies from the Minus 5 album of Monkeys and Men, released in 2016. We'll wrap things up by listening to a recent song by the Young Fresh Fellows, another 10 reasons from their 2012 release, Tiempo de Lujo. For more information, see minus5.com, that is the number five, and youngfreshfellows.net. For more information on this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And please support our efforts at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. We'll have just played a little bit of Two Lives just to have something... Raucous to start okay. things off. Mostly we're going to be spending time with your recent music here, but give us a little picture of the jump in style if we can condense this to a, a one-minute account. The uh, Young First Fellow stuff to me sounds very often 50s inspired. The sticky lyrics is often the initial catching point. Very rock and roll based as opposed to getting into more country rock and experimental territory later
1: which is funny because what you're saying is true to a degree there was a lot of young Fresh songs that were basically started by one of us saying something you know that we thought was funny And then I'd be like, oh, that'd be a good song title. And, you know, and then I would take it from there. So a lot of our stuff was maybe sort of in jokes between us. We kind of had our own language and all that, but we didn't really care if other people got it or not. But they usually sensed that we were having fun and that was, you know, a good part of the deal. But Two Lives is a weird one because when I wrote that, it was actually a country song. It was like I wrote it for Johnny Cash with Johnny Cash in mind. So here, I'll just play you a little thing so you can see what it sounds like if you can hear this it was it was like I tried to love to So you get the idea. So it was yeah. nothing kind of like it turned out once we revved it up, you know? So it's just a matter of however you might write
0: it on acoustic by yourself, once you bring it to the drummer in particular, it just becomes, that's the band sound.
1: And the Young Fresh Fellows drummer was not all about playing slow <laughs> slow grooves, you know? He was pretty panicked, you know? And uh, we liked that, actually. It was really good. We still do. We still play, and... We still have a great time. We don't get to do it as that often, but it's usually uh, three to ten shows a year happen one way or another. So, some of what
0: you were doing with that band seemed to be trying to craft the quintessential pop song or something, which with our first song here, In the Ground, you're obviously still trying to do that. Like, this seems a really, really good example of this, as pulls out all the classic arrangement tricks, like even just looking at the layering and the drums, like, okay, we don't want to have a two, so we'll, we'll use maracas as the hi-hat in this part, and then we'll just very carefully crafted and layered without having that many chords or anything and it's really just focused on the lyrics
1: and the melody and give us a little intro before folks hear that it's interesting what you said about the drums because that was all and the drums and the maracas and all that that whole arrangement was john moen the drummer from the Decembris and many other great bands who i've known since he was a teenager probably but he did all that stuff live the drums and the maracas and all that was a, a live band take and he came up with that whole arrangement the way it built and all that it was amazing but yeah the song for me was just a straight Classic folk rock kind of thing. You know, I was like, Peter will play 12 string on this. You know, I was thinking of P.F. Sloan when I wrote it, like his music, his precious times, stuff like that. And, you know, I had the lyric already. I lots of times I write the lyrics first. So, I had my true statement about what I think about death, you know, which I, <laughs> that, I write about death all the time because the
0: happiest death song.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just felt like a really classic folk rock song. And I just thought we'll just go straight for it. It probably got a little more nuanced with John's drum arrangement. And then Nate Query from also from the December's who played bass on it did that crazy bass thing at the end of it and where it went kind of demented at the very end. And I had no idea that was going to happen. (laughs) It just happened. And I was like, that was really cool. That's the take.
0: So tell a little about it sounds at least with the case of John that you're just relying on the intuitions of the folks that you're playing with and, and you're coming in with a completed song that is again you could just play it by yourself it would sound totally whole but in terms of like this little lead riff
1: or the solo at the end like how do these things get laid down do you just kind of go through it with the group a couple times or yeah we do everything really fast and you know that song was originally on the five record set that I put out on record store day in 2013 so I did a five record LP that was 57 new songs. And uh, that was the original version of that was on there. And and then when we did Dungeon Golds, which was sort of a composite, like not a really a best of from the five records, but a tight pop record edited down from the sprawling uh, masterwork. So, and when I did that, I revisited a few of the songs. And in the ground, I didn't have that little lead riff at the beginning. Like I added that and added a lot of backing vocals. So it got even... Even a little more poppy and everything. But the basic track was yeah, I had the song, finished song, went in the studio, played it for the guys. They'd never heard it before. And we just went through it three or four times until we got a take and didn't labor over it at all. And I was like, that's it. That's great. And then I basically take it home from the studio then and do the vocals and the overdubs myself. I sent that one off to John Ramberg, who's a great member of the Minus Five who's played with me forever. But he lives in Seattle, so I sent it to him, and he did the guitar solo at the end, because I wanted him to be on it. I just felt like he should be on that song.
0: (laughs) Okay, I was wondering, that did not sound like a Peter Buck style i love that guitar solo i mean it's so it's amazing tight it's kind of staying in one little section of the neck yeah it's not there's not a lot of movement in it but it the way the dynamics in terms of the frequency of notes per second sort of has changed
1: it still builds up to some kind of crescendo at the very end it's really cool and i wasn't even there you know i just sent it to him and kurt block recorded it for me but you know i knew peter was going to do his like 12 string thing on it you know which is really what glues the whole song together i think so did he come up with that little lead
0: riff, the da 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 da? Or was that just, you know, something that was in your head from the very start that you would
1: That little riff at the beginning was added on at the end. It's not even on the first ah. version. Yeah. <laughs> that da da. da da Yeah, yeah that's, no, it's so like that's the song. And I remixed it and all that too. And then I'd also sent it off to um Ian McLaughlin to play the electric piano on it, the Wurlitzer on it, which was a dream for me to have him play on the some minus fives tracks. Well, and on this one, I mean, it's not like it takes over anywhere. It's just a really nice, there's a
0: mixing choice of how it was going to sit in there that it just makes a nice little atmosphere. That's, of course, one of the great things about Peter's playing on anything is that it's not the lead part, no. <laughs> you know, and then you're strumming away. Whenever you're playing a uh, 12-string, you're you know you're going to
1: sound like the birds. It's going to sound like that thick web and having the piano in there works very well. They've been playing forever, and they're all about doing what the song needs, you know? And I I always trust Peter to do that. He likes to do things fast and keep the uh, inspiration, you know, have it be all about the inspiration, the first thing you play. You know, when we played with Robin Hitchcock for a long time, and Peter played with him off and on for ages, and Robin always liked to—he didn't like— to have Peter hear the song before he recorded it. (laughs) He wanted to get the first thing that Peter played because he respected his intuition so much and knew that Peter would just go with what he felt was going to be right for the song. And it was always inspired and really supportive for getting the song to where it needs to go. So as long as you're not doing anything like too dissonant with the chord
0: progression... Peter can just get it in real time, looking at your hands as you're going? Or does he at least have to go through
1: once? There was one time when we were doing a Robin record, and we did a song where Peter went over and laid on the couch for a little bit and fell asleep, and Robin showed us the song. We played through it once, and then he's like, okay, let's do a take. And uh, Peter got up off the couch, picked up his guitar. I swear he'd been asleep, and he must have somehow heard the song in his sleep and just played it once. And it was a really weird song, too. <laughs> and it had some dissonant stuff in it, but it just worked. One take, he just played the perfect thing. We were all just like, how did that happen? <laughs> it was amazing. So you got the great layering
0: in terms of those percussive layers, which I still find it a little hard to believe that. So he's got a tambo on his kit. So he can just throw in the tambo instead of the snare here and
1: there. I might have done the tambourine later, but he he did the um, maracas were were Uh part of the live drum track. So the layering between those things and the... Like at the beginning, he's playing maracas and kick drum probably, you know, and then at some point he throws the maracas down and switches to sticks and he doesn't really fully kick in until the last verse where the whole band then starts driving forward. It's really cool. I guess I was
0: picturing, even though, of course, the guitar solo is always put on last, almost inevitably, unless somebody's just playing it live. But then I wouldn't expect that change in tone if that was just Peter playing along live and then just jam that. But yet what's going on underneath it is so obviously. So you're, you're playing this as a band and doing this, kicking up the intensity, even though you didn't know what the lead thing. I mean, it seems like you would almost fall in love then with the sound of the band
1: with no solo on it. Going into that drive, and that's the thing. We didn't have a concrete ending for the song. You know, we'd only played it a couple times. So, but that's how Peter and I like to do stuff. We like to leave it up to chance a little bit and see what happens. And then, you know, you do a take and something exciting happens, and you're like, that's it. It's great. You know, we're not worried about everything being absolutely perfect. But on that song, I think it kind of is. It makes it worth being almost four and a half minutes long as opposed to because right when you
0: get to the you're done with all the lyrics by three minutes and then you just start repeating that in the ground in the ground and that could just be just fade out right there and it would be you know three minute three second long song or whatever something like that unless you added this whole i put the flying section i mean it's still just the intro chords for the most part but with that added texture of the live band which will contrast that with our third song when we get to it, which also has a... Uh, extended outro. "Waymer Never Dies, that's all you against yourself, right? So you couldn't use the intensity of the band playing off each other to... No launch this jam. Instead I was of to...
1: <laughs> jamming with myself one, one <laughs> instrument at a time. <laughs> but the thing with In the Ground and a lot of songs we do, I probably let it go longer at the end than I typically would have thinking that it was going to be a fade out when we did the basic track. And I also want to say that, you know, with In the Ground, in that box set with the 57 songs, I think only five or six of them were actually tracked with a full band. Most of the rest of them, were built up one instrument at a time kind of thing. Or maybe they started with guitar and drums. But there was only maybe five or six songs on that record, and In the Ground is one of them that were tracked with a full band, with the two guitars, bass, and drums.
0: Yeah, so the way you made this Dungeon Golds album seems like a nice way of sort of bucking the system of, when I was in college, people would, oh yeah, I really like R.E.M. because I have this eponymous album. <laughs> or I really like Squeeze because I have the singles that like You can't compare the greatest hits album and it's only because at least in those two cases, there was enough similarity in style within that progression that even in, you know, the car's greatest hits, it sounds like a completely different band from the beginning to the end. It's obviously a greatest hits album, but I can't think of another artist that then was able to do something like the squeeze singles by, I'll just go ahead and do a whole catalog of
1: material. And, you know, all those songs were done in the same two year period or whatever. Uh. So they're all, I think it's pretty cohesive, but I, picked the songs for that record because i thought they would go together really well whereas they were strewn across five records you know in the original box set they were grouped sort of thematically but this one i kind of like went for the really strong more straightforward pop songs probably so I haven't
0: heard the original version of this. Were all the backing vocal gestures, the ahs intact on the original version that was part of the conception? or
1: I definitely added some backing vocals that weren't there on the original one. It was a little more stripped down, like the echoing, in the ground. Yeah. I don't think those were on the first version. I think those were added for the second one. When you would do that, would it be an in the studio or as you're developing the final version?
0: Like I find when I have multiple versions of a song that I've recorded over years, it's because... You know, I listen to the old version enough times, whether with the band or just listening to the recording, and some harmony comes into my head. (laughs) And so it just ends up, if I'm then 10 years later, I'm recording the song, like, I guess I have to put that harmony on that. That's like part of the song, even though it's not part of the original recording, it's something that's embedded itself in my brain.
1: There were a couple of things. I mean, I was 100% happy with the song the way it came out when I put it on the box set. But I'm kind of like a record geek in the way that I like alternate versions of things. And, and I don't like to really release the same thing twice. And since I was doing that with the Dungeon Gold stuff, even though... The box set, there was only 750 copies. So, you know, there weren't that, like, that many people had it, but. I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll remix some of the songs just to make them different or whatever. So I was basically just like looking at maybe remixing the song a little bit and then I got all these ideas for the other backing vocals and for the guitar line. And I thought, well, that'll be cool. This version will be different than the other one, you know? So (laughs) it was that kind of thing. But, you know, I was 100% happy with it before. There was nothing nagging at me about it. It's just that when I had the opportunity to revisit I thought, oh, it'd be fun to do some different stuff. And I am really glad because now it's a little hard for me to imagine the Songs without some of those parts, even though I can go back and listen to it on the other record like that. So even though it's great to have the
0: really off-the-cuff version and kind of get all your first ideas in there, it also seems really nice to overthink the hell, ha- you know, at least have a couple passes of doing that. <laughs> maybe that's Maybe that's the happy medium between the we're going to studio the crap out of this and we're going to do it in one take, is do it in one take, wait a year... <laughs> Yeah. Do some extra stuff on it.
1: Yeah. And and that being said, with, you know, a year's hindsight, when I did do Dungeon Golds, I think of the 13 songs on there or whatever. I think I only remixed or added anything to like four or five, maybe six. But most of them are so subtle that no one would be able to tell the difference. In the Ground was probably the one that had the most difference on it. Let's turn back.
0: This is still the minus five history to All the Time, the version from the first album, Old Liquidator, originally released in 1995. So it's pretty soon after you were still doing Young Fresh Fellows albums. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little about that transition and
1: where a song like this might come from? The Fellows were pretty full on through like 92 and 93. And some really good things started happening to us around then, like going to Spain a lot and going to Japan. But we sort of slowed down as far as slogging around the country and playing the same bars, you know, around the U.S. about that time. And everybody had things happening in their families and work and... We didn't make a conscious decision to cut back, but we just naturally did. So we weren't doing that much. And I was still writing lots of songs. And I'd always had way too many folky, sad songs. We would put one or two of those maybe on every record. But I'd probably write 10 of those for every one rocker that I write, you know. So I had a backlog of those kind of songs. And Peter had just moved to Seattle, so we were hanging out a lot and I thought, let's make a psychedelic folk record, basically with him and I, and and then John Auer and Ken Stringfellow were kind of the other main stalwarts when we did that. The template for the minus five, the whole idea of the minus five was thinking of Big Star Third, some dismal stuff that's sometimes pretty and lots of weird noises. That was the intention for the minus five. It wasn't to compete with the fellows. It was supposed to be a completely different thing. And it really was at the beginning. And then as The minus five somehow turned into a band. We started doing rock and roll songs too, you know, uh, it wasn't intended to be that way, but that's just the way things metamorphosize. So all the time is a pretty good example of what the minus five was originally intended to be. It started off with me singing the song and playing guitar live, just, you know, acoustic guitar and vocal. And then we just put stuff on it, (laughs) you know, we slathered whatever weird things we wanted to put on it and just built it up from there. And a lot of the songs on the first record don't have drums or anything, including all the time. So, yeah, it was more psychedelic folk music. And I remember writing that song I just my ex wife's brother had given me a cheap k electric guitar that he'd found someplace, probably for fifty bucks, and he gave it to me as for my birthday or something and I just picked it up and I just started playing these weird chords, and the song just came out pretty much whole, just like that, which is really remarkable when that happens. It doesn't happen to me very often anymore, but it's always great when it does, where everything just comes out completed whole.
2: Crying on the way to the bank Where the river overflows All over, over you I don't argue point of view There's a pointer for you it up for a change, okay. It's not meant to turn your mind. I still want you all the time. Call the mediator scum When there's a call for you to come down It's a come down, that's for sure Don't you have some place to be Where the good is time release? Hey, I'm falling off the stairs Well, it's not meant to turn your mind I still want you all the
3: time All the time All the time All the time, all the time.
2: Like it not.
0: So the obvious thing here is even if you've got this main strumming and singing part having after the third line loud what is it melodica harmonica what is making this cacophony
1: there's a couple different harmonicas in different keys that probably aren't in the key of the actual song (laughs) which was intentional and then also this local seattle sort of legend richard peterson he's a an autistic street performer but he also makes records and he's kind of a genius he's a trumpet player but i think he played trumpets and maybe trumpets and trombones. so he overdubbed a bunch of those on that part too so it's most of the cacophony is from a couple harmonicas in different keys and his brass instruments and then the basic chord that that is going over is e flat with a bunch of open strings with open e's in it so you've got an e flat chord with open e strings so you it creates a whole discordant effect even without any of the stuff that we put on top of it i find it kind of funny that the acoustic obviously this is
0: just a matter that it was overdubbed but the acoustic just keeps the nice little strumming going through this cacophony as if there's this loud thing that's happening next to you.
1: well they're completely disconnected because the acoustic guitar and voice was the performance and then everything else was just uh, frosting on the beater as you would say that gives to mind the big star thing, you know, and why it's
0: useful to have the mega version of the third album that has, without the overdubs, that right. not, like, what was it when it was a song, you know? Yeah, I don't even know what I would think of this if you just played it as a solo thing. Is the thought that this is not quite interesting enough, what is the motivation, or it just was there from the
1: beginning? I've played the song solo, and I think it's a whole, you know, as a song. I really liked it just when I wrote it, and we weren't trying to even obscure that or cover up for anything. It was just sort of the inspiration behind the Minus 5 at that point was just to try anything and see what works and what we all enjoyed. And getting out there was part of it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think the song sounds great just as an acoustic guitar and vocal thing. It's pretty cool. But it was really fun to go with anything we came up with and see what we liked.
0: Well, then you've got these more traditional arrangement elements. That is it cello that comes in in the second verse? Or is it upright bass played high or something? No, I think there might be some cello on there. I'm not sure about that, actually. And then by the chorus, you've got vibes or something going on, or synth vibes or what? There were vibes, yes. Uh-huh. Which I wasn't really sure if those things were also reacting when the cacophony came, or those were more recorded before that as sweeteners to the less
1: cacophonous part. I'm not sure about that. I think that the vibes probably came a little bit later than the noisy stuff because that weird chord that the acoustic guitar was playing just kind of cried out for a little free jazz <laughs> to accompany it. Maybe I think it was great because our whole idea with that record was just, we had to deal with whatever we had. Like there was a couple times we showed up at egg studios in Seattle for the session, maybe john and ken and peter and i or or any smaller combination of of those people whoever was around and we'd be like oh let's put a guitar on this and we would find out that we only had one guitar there and it had like two broken strings (laughs) <laughs> so we'd be like, well, okay, well, we, we got to use it. That's just, that's what we have. So that's what we got to do. We had to embrace every weird thing that happened and go with it. You know, that was the whole thing with that record. Ken played drums on a song and it was just a cardboard box, you know, and Ken's not a drummer, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Anything that we were faced with, we had to embrace. There's the, the weirdest guitar solo in here. Let me even just play a little bit of it. That's the basic track. That's the live original guitar. It's obviously a first take. There's actual strings that don't quite sound. It's terrible. <laughs> and it was kind of supposed to be terrible, but I just thought that's what the song would need. And and when we've played the song live over the years, that solo section can stretch out and we've had times when there's a lot of people playing where everybody takes a solo, like, you know, it goes six or eight times through with everybody in the band taking a solo, even a drum solo. But it always starts with me playing that really lame guitar solo that sounds like somebody who just started playing guitar, <laughs> which I can do really well because I'm not very good.
0: <laughs> well, and then it sounds like you're just done with the song when that ends like that. You let it just go long enough that, oh, there's no right. song. <laughs> and then this middle section here
2: don't you have some place to be where the good is time released hey i'm falling off the stairs this came
0: out in 1995 this is actually right in the heyday and you're in seattle right yeah. <laughs> Of the loud soft loud of the Posies Nirvana thing. So this is your, I don't say reaction to that, but a, a very warped version of that to have this.
1: And it's funny because when we would play it sometimes with the band, we would play it with two guitars, bass and drums. It probably sounded more like the prototypical Seattle loud soft loud kind of band thing you know which to me isn't quite as interesting but it was still fun to play. <laughs> well, I'll play for the folks just the equivalent section in your later what 2006
0: version where it doesn't sound like Nirvana but of course you're not gonna have the trombone or French horn or whatever
2: Some place to be Where the good is time release Hey I'm falling off the stairs. Meant
0: to turn you back. Let's look at the middle section for a second here when it starts to repeat.
3: All the time
1: So this little George Harrison-ish riff, old Beatles, (laughs) George Harrison. Yeah, that's Peter on 12 string, of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. He did that right on the original version. And the thing with that song was that section where I just keep repeating all the time over and over again. That's always of indeterminate length. So sometimes I might do it four or eight times, but more often it could be... 17 times or 23 times or whatever. I would just kind of like really try to, until the audience would get really frustrated, <laughs> almost.
0: It's less than a minute here. It still sounds like, just because the tempo of the song is slow, you're not repeating it that many times, but he does that riff a few times, then he does kind of a, a happier version and you get the trombone starting to groan kind of an answer to it that really gives it a little throbbing to get you then to the last verse. The modulation. That's not the last verse, the next the It actually modulates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the at the end that you actually go it sounded like you were just jumping to somewhere different but I went and checked no it's just moving from D to E like that's the way you modulate to make things happier but that's not the effect here
2: Like
1: it's on the river back. No, it doesn't really work. It doesn't have that great lift at the end of the song like a modulation is supposed to to cause for you. When we finally get to the end and you have to have the chaos that has to overtake all the earlier
0: chaoses and you have this blistering electric solo again. So it was this layering.
2: Together, like it a <laughs>
1: was all just put on. Like I said, it started off with just me singing and playing acoustic guitar and that was the template and then we put stuff on top of it. That's pretty much how that whole record went. I mean I think almost every song just started off with me singing it and playing it. It's one of the rare records where the vocals are, are live because I usually will redo the vocals later but this one, I since I was doing it all just as a you know acoustic guitar and vocal, they were meant to be keeper vocals and so that was pretty much how every song started. I would just sing it and play it at the same time. And then we would go ape on it. <laughs> no click track or anything like that either, which I'm sure is pretty obvious on that song. So when you layer after the effect, do you pretty much always
0: just do it one instrument at a time? Or do you ever, okay, like I have the basic track, but now the four of
1: us are all going to listen to it and jam against it at the same time. Do you ever do that? We've done that a lot with REM actually. Okay, In REM, we did that very often it would be like we would get a track and then we would go group overdub, and everybody would run back out in the studio, switch instruments, pick an instrument to play, and then we would all play on the song at the same time. Again, we did that a lot on the later REM records, and it was really fun. And you have a lot of tracks, so you could remove if some. Somebody- <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm I'm not saying it all got used <laughs> by any means, but I think on this one it was usually more one thing at a time. I was
0: just recalling doing that, that I think I only had to do that because, you know, if I was using a four track at the time, like I did the overdub, we have to do the
1: lead guitar and the keyboard at the same time. Go. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. I think Liquidator was done on eight track. Actually, I think Egg Studios was still half-inch 8-track. I don't think he'd gone to 16 yet. And coincidentally, the record was recorded and mixed there on the Spectrasonic console, which came from Stax Studios in Memphis. So ah. it's a little tie-in. Not Arden, but Stax, but very cool. So given that restriction in tracks, would you even still have your guitar and your voice on different tracks? Or would you just do them into one mic together on the song? Or He probably mic'd both. Uh-huh. Um so they were probably separate, but you probably couldn't separate them much. And we probably did some bouncing down of things, you know, as we went along. Probably had to do submixes, I'm guessing. So you can never go back and, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and, and tweak this.
0: Well, let's continue moving in the further experimental direction. Waymer never dies. So say something about this most recent of Monkeys and Men album, 2016, came out. This is the most recent minus five thing. Whereas Dungeon Gold is sort of this is a quintessential alt country pop rock record whatever why a tribute album to the monkeys not even a tribute album it's not like redoing monkey songs but it's telling stories behind the scenes of it you know expressing your childhood interaction with the the whole world what was going on here
1: well first of all i should mention that this of monkeys and men was one of the lps in the five lp set ah so see all like i said when those five lps they i kind of grouped them together and so obviously i knew that at some point i was pretty sure that that would come out as a standalone record because it just was such a cool concept and everything so i didn't use any of those songs for dungeon Golds, even though they're from the same period and all that But I was pretty sure that that would come out as a standalone thing. So the concept, just this friend of mine in Texas, Bucks Burnett, wrote this ridiculous poem about Michael Nesmith. And there's a bunch of monkey's nerds around the country, some of whom are quite good friends of mine. And I'm a monkey's nerd. And he wrote this ridiculous poem about Michael Nesmith, and it was 16 verses. And I was like, that is just absurd. And then I looked and I went, I should make it longer. (laughs) So I basically took it and I kind of rewrote a lot of it, but I used his basic thing. And then I added more and more verses to it. And I came up with the music pretty quickly and I really liked it from there. I, I was like, I want to do a song about every one of the monkeys. So that's the beginning of the album. And then you go through Boyce and Heart, the main composers. But then you have another few songs after that. Like this Waymer Never Dies. How does this? The second side of it, you know, it's of monkeys and men. So the second side of it is all songs I wrote about other real people. Not monkeys related. <laughs> no, not so much. It's broken in the monkey's side and the other guy's side. The second side has a, two of the songs are about friends of mine, both deceased. Blue Rickenbacker is about the singer-songwriter Jimmy Silva. And then Waymer Never Dies is about a guy named John Waymer who I was in bands with. The first bands I ever played in back at the end of high school in, in those days. What year approximately? Uh, we're talking like 1972. Okay. Like, going back pretty far. <laughs> and were you playing Prague at the time? What were you doing in 19... 19- <laughs> what kind of music? The first band we had, and and Waymer was sort of the main lead singer in that band, was called Hannibal's Chorus Boys. And uh, we were pretty inept, but we just played stuff that was easy and that we liked. So we played, you know, Gloria and Satisfaction and just that kind of songs and people did not like that then (laughs) they really because you know everybody was getting into prog or country rock or stuff like that so it was kind of an embarrassment when we would play at the youth center or whatever and we'd be playing these songs that were you know so old like five or six years old whatever (laughs) you know but they were they were kind of uncool then. nobody really liked that kind of stuff then so we were super uncool and not very good but you know we had a great time it was just me and my friends and Waymer was sort of the ringleader of that band if you could say there was one I'm still friends with all those guys they're kind of my high school gang you know or a bunch of Beatles freaks And but we also loved all kinds of music one of the guys in the group was a big he was the first guy who got into free jazz so he forced free jazz upon all of us which I thank him for (laughs) very much because he dragged us into it kicking and screaming I think but it was a good move so that's why when in Waymer Never Dies I am sort of mentioning a lot of his favorite artists in the song. And so you get jazz artists and singer songwriters and, classic rock and classical music. He was a big classical music buff. We should warn folks that this is about 10 and a half minutes long. (laughs) The
0: song itself, as you've described it, is sort of over by minute four. You've gotten all the lyrics out of the way. You've told this intimate story, which sounds very much like it was recorded like the previous song, like all the time, in terms of you're right up there with the guitar, you know, a little vocal processing to make it sound even more intimate.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that one, I, I think I did do the vocal and guitar on one mic actually okay on that one that was the basic track so the vocals a little scratchy sounding <laughs> you know the whole thing the basic track is pretty funky sounding but yeah then i just did all the overdubs and for the ending rather than it just being a thing where i just kind of kept going like at some of the songs and oh it'll fade out or whatever i actually constructed this ridiculous chord progression that never repeated itself and doesn't really have any basis in, you know, the way Western music chord progressions go. And I just wrote it out. I wrote out this, really really lengthy chord progression making sure that it never repeated itself some of the chords are the same but they're in different orders or different lengths and so that was the basic track of the song and i think it worked really well i think the outro is one of the pieces of music i'm kind of most proud of even though the rest of it was just all improvised there were just single takes like i played the piano did one take played it over it and that was that was it you know and did that pretty much with all the instruments at the end And then I dropped in a bunch of found sounds and that kind of stuff as well. All right. I'm glad you said that about the end. So it'll give people the
0: stamina to hold out (laughs) to a minute ten. Here's the song.
2: Wow. He felt music more intensely than anyone I've ever known by time or fashion, but by the soul in every note. The way a voice or a harpsichord would make a melody its own. He loved music more
3: intensely
2: than anyone I've ever known. Oscar Peterson and Art Tatum, Shostakovich and Ramo, Otis, Aretha, Eric Cass, yeah, the Beatles and the Stones, Sandy Denny, Michael Hurley, McGinnis Flint, and Ronnie Lane, Jack Bruce... Pamela Poland Scarlatti, and Alice Coltrane He would let me step on stage once with my fingernails painted As if by such an act our band's performance would be tainted And yet there from the genius Proudly sang I don't hate Jews In his self And two court Tour de force I got the blues you know, I just wasn't. And when it's gonna stop hurting, but you know, it just doesn't. You know, it just doesn't.
0: So for folks that got through the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. If you're still
1: here, you get a gold star.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It sounded like even that you ran out of guitar that around nine and a half minutes, the guitar not just stops, but it sounds like there's a sound effect that makes it sound like the tape that it was playing on, you know, like when a reel to reel tape or, you know, in, in a movie theater starts flipping around because it's no longer attached, then you get that sound. And then the piano just keeps going. Like was that? just with the triplets and all that pure jamming. That was not part of the original progression.
1: Yeah, I was just into it and I kept going. And so some of the instruments kept going after the basic track ended. (laughs) Yes, that's it. And again, of course I always had the option of it being a fade out after four minutes, but I loved the way the outro came out so much that I just, I had to go all the way, (laughs) had to take it to the end. (laughs) And was some of this, the freedom of the fact that you were doing this as a five album set.
0: And so just like, You wouldn't put revolution number nine on a ten-song album.
1: Right. You have to have a double album and bury it as the second to last thing here. That's true to a degree, and I but I didn't know I was making a five record set when I recorded all this stuff. I was just recording. You know, I just was recording lots of songs and I was thinking, well, what's the next minus five record going to be? It could be this total pop album, or it could be this weird psychedelic record, or it could be this downer folk record. I had all the the songs there. And then I just thought, well, what if I put all of those <laughs> in one box set, you know? And so the five record set has all those, it has a really downer folk record. That's kind of more like the first minus five album, which none of those songs have come out anywhere else. Cause I didn't want to put any of those on dungeon golds. Cause that's some more upbeat record, uh-huh. you know, so and then I had a Monkeys and Men and then I had this really psychedelic record that has some of the songs are on Dungeon Gold's like it's Magenta Man and, a, a, you know, some of those. So, But I didn't know when I was recording these songs that they were going to be part of a five record set, but I was just recording so I could do whatever I wanted <laughs> and not knowing what was going to see the light of day and what wasn't. Now, what seems unusual in here is you've got the nice acoustic and and
0: singing things, but then you have this prominent, so it's Melatron, Mellotron, it's not organ, right? Yeah. That's just right there from the beginning, like pretty big, taking up that space. There's very little else that eventually, by the very end of the song, it's doing some riffs and stuff. But for the most part, it's just there, like the thing that is driving things through. Right, right. Well, along with the acoustic, of course, which is... I found your approach to drums in this very interesting. Was this another, like, I'm not even playing at a kit, I'm banging on things because I'm not... Yeah,
1: I was definitely going for that. You know, there's a few songs on Big Star 3rd where the drums just kind of play fills every once in a while, you know, that kind of thing. And I and I love doing that. This isn't the only song where that's happened, but it works very well for my drum style because I can't play drums. <laughs> so One of the only times where it actually goes for... A couple measures into like a steady
0: thing. It's like in the way, like it should just. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but some of the fills individually, you know, and it sounds like it's about to go into the steady. No, no,
1: it's just. <laughs> Not happening.
2: <laughs>
1: I kind of love that kind of thing. And uh, like I said, it definitely fit my abilities. <laughs> I guess during the second half, the harpsichord is an interesting choice. Like,
0: that that doesn't really fit just sonically with this. I was thinking of early Pink Floyd. You know, you've got the slide guitar that sort of has that sound and some jazz chords moving down a little. But then putting a big harpsichord thing that almost sounds like a synth. Just because it's you know like a really bad eighty synth sound. In terms well, of, I can
1: tell you, I can tell you, I don't have a real harpsichord in my basement. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. So it is a it's probably from like vintage keys, a Casio harpsichord. No, it's nothing that bad. It's one that's <laughs> that should sound good, but it probably doesn't. It, it actually is probably a Kurzweil harpsichord sound, but you know, yeah, it, you can tell it's not. Its tone is fine. It's just the fact that
0: it's neither mixed down to make a little like the piano in the first song <laughs> to make just a nice little textural bed it's another thing you know like that mellotron from the beginning that it's just it's just there i'm not even gonna put a lot of reverb on it i'm right. gonna just, just...
1: well harpsichord is gonna jump out at you it's got that tonal quality especially a digital one but i know the reason i did it is because Weimer loved harpsichord music he actually had a harpsichord this is one of the kind of jokes we had with our friend, he bought a harpsichord kit and was putting a harpsichord kit together for his entire life. (laughs) And it never got to where it was usable, you know, before he died. And so, Rameau is one of the artists I mentioned in the song, and he was a French composer of harpsichord music that Waymer just loved. So, I think I felt like I've got to get some harpsichord (laughs) in here as a just another part of the tribute to my friend. Yes, yeah, so you're reminding me of how
0: I was collecting all these like dead walkmans for a while to like build my own Melotron of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that no, nothing playable. It from Still that. working
1: on that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Forgot about that for years. <laughs> these found sounds and things. I did get the idea that maybe you were referencing again we've got opera come in a little bit. Like, did you literally reference any of the artists that you had listed earlier in the lyrics by where do these things come from, this little backwards bit of strings and all this?
1: Some of them might have been things that I gathered on my phone or on a little digital recorder or something like that. But most of them are probably and this comes full circle because I did this on old liquidator on the song story I put all these found sounds on it but most of them honestly were found on other records so you know I had to sign the contract and said no there's no sampling on this record at all you know back when Nothing I did old, you're L-. going
0: to recognize it's not like that one sax shrieking for two seconds back
1: when I did on old liquidator but when I you listen to the song on old liquidator and some of them are really obvious like you can hear the honeys doing shoot the curl and a riff from a Bobby Goldsboro song they're super obvious there's art peppers playing on that one too you know but i just figured minus five is gonna be under the radar enough that no one's ever gonna sue me on this and uh so a lot of the stuff on end of waymer never dies is stuff from records in fact i probably took things from people that he really liked there might be some little jazz snippets or classical snippets that i then I, i reversed them or processed them so that they're totally unrecognizable you know and there's snatches of dialogue. I think there might be something from an old Thin Man radio broadcast. Uh, You know, there's all kinds of weird stuff on there. But stuff that would probably only mean something to me, really, that I thought was appropriate for the song. Which just makes it kind of cinematic, that even right at the beginning, it's like vinyl starting from
0: a slow and some other sort of clicking that either sounds like, what, you're putting coins in a jukebox or it's the record getting going, something like that. Yep, exactly. And even just this hiss, like that there's like that you recorded a little from outside and then suddenly you're not. (laughs) And that seems to set, it's not like it's a specific image, but with the found sounds coming in and out, I kind of got the idea like you're driving past stuff, like you're with the window open, and so you
1: just hear snatches of things. It's not the same effect as, you know, I'm turning the radio dial. It feels, especially at the end, like it is kind of a travelogue. And I'm glad you got that feeling because it's supposed to sort of be that way where you just, you're moving along and different things are kind of, appearing on either side and flowing past, you know, that kind of thing. It's definitely it's supposed to give that kind of feel, and I'm glad that that worked, <laughs> apparently. I actually really
0: like when the piano finally goes into 6-8 time near the end and the organ is still playing against it, that it, I'm not going to say it becomes more musical, but it's different. It's not the same, you've kind of gotten in this groove earlier with the major 7th chords and the steel and, and that old Pink Floyd thing, but then it, the way that it resolves, it's definitely gone somewhere, even though... <laughs> I don't think that on first listen, that was my impression. I think on first listen, I'm like, it's still going? What
1: is it? Right, right, yeah.
0: But I guess that's the same thing, you know, with something like Revolution Number no. 9 or something, that on first listen, you're just like, why is this happening to me?
1: <laughs> and I could have devolved into complete chaos, like I do on a lot of things. But with that one, I even with all the little things coming in and out, I did want to sort of stick with the progression of the the chords and the music, because I thought it was sort of beautiful in a way. Even though, like the piano is is all one take. That's the first take I played a piano. I just played it all the way through, and I didn't do anything to it. I liked the spontaneity of it. Even though I didn't devolve into my you know Cecil Taylor piano stylings where it's just completely out there and you don't worry about what key or chords are going on or anything like that. I love doing that as well, but this wasn't the song for it. The piano thing. I mean, that's one of sort of my first formative musical experiences is just going
0: on the piano in your house late at night and and you have the sustain pedal down and you're just playing these little chord clusters and they can just go on and on and on. It has to be nice for
1: that to work. It can't devolve into utter chaos. That would, you would just stop. Yeah, exactly. I know it's a real earful. (laughs) I don't expect that many people to be listening to it all the time, but I don't know. I guess I did it for myself and for my little group of friends more than anything, but hopefully other people can appreciate it in some way or another.
0: And we haven't talked about the lyrics really for any of these, you know, for In the Ground it's very nicely poetic, but the meaning is clear. <laughs> yeah. I'm in an urn. I'm okay. You
1: know, <laughs> It's a little more straightforward than a lot of my lyrics, that's for sure. Yeah.
0: By all the time crying on the way to the bank where the river overflows all over over you, I don't argue point of view. There's a pointer for you. Give it up for a change. Sort of getting poetry in a notebook kind of thing, but I'm not exactly sure. It's just intentionally ambiguous because it's just supposed to evoke a mood say something about your lyrical approach
1: i just like the sound of the words you know and it it means something to me but i guess i knew what i was singing about at the time it was definitely a relationship song but it's probably a fault of mine in songwriting you know and probably why i'm still a fairly obscure artist (laughs) is that i like the sound of words i like the way they make me feel and i don't always worry about the meaning being clear you know i'm okay with people interpreting it or just going, what the hell is that? I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I'm okay with that too. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, it's probably kept me from being a more mainstream artist, but I never tried to be a mainstream artist, so <laughs> I guess that's just something I have to deal with. And sometimes, like, within the ground, I, I actually have something to say, and I, and I say it, <laughs> And uh unfortunately, those are probably the happen less often than the ones where I just pull words together that I find really pleasing and intriguing. So I often prep
0: for these things, you know, listening to stuff in the car. And so my 14 year old daughter is listening to with me. And I think we've gotten through several songs on the in rock album. And she was just like, none of this makes
1: any sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's probably right. <laughs> she's probably right. They always mean something to me when I say them, but I also think it's really important for the words to sound good. And I guess you can always fall back on Dylan and, you know, a lot of his greatest songs, nobody knows what they mean. <laughs> and just to keep the mood. So, again, looking back at all the time, you've got
0: these relationship lyrics and then this repeated all the time, all the time, all the time, which...
1: Yeah, you know, the whole thing is purposefully maddening. And then when you actually come back. But it's the end of the line is I still want you all the time. So it's ah, actually kind of sweet if you if you think about it in that way.
0: I don't know if obsession is necessarily sweet to the recipient. Right. Or, yes, And the thing it goes into after that is call the mediator scum. And they're a call for you to come down, which doesn't exactly sound
1: like part of a love song and more, but is perfectly in place. The song's about a problematic relationship, but there's still love there. We lie together like it or not. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. It's called. And then you've
0: got. Called marriage. (laughs) For Waymer Never Dies, a pretty specific, not that hard to understand portrait. At least when you start, he felt music more intensely than anybody I've ever known going through the different artists. And then that's interesting to hear this. He wouldn't let me step on stage with my fingernails painted to hear that this was actually about
1: you, you know, at that time of your life. He got pretty dictatorial sometimes with the band. And we were like, who made you the leader of the band? It was one of those kind of things. And, uh, he was a very, um, contradictory kind of person. But yeah, that was a thing where. You know, we were just goofing off, and somebody's sister painted my fingernails all different colors. And we were going to play a show, and he's like, You're not playing until you get that stuff off your fingernails. I was like, What is your problem? What is wrong with you? You know, in
0: 1972.
1: Yeah, right. (laughs) Put
0: a fox's head on.
1: Yeah, might have been 73 or 74 at that point. But, you know, I mean, you know, glam might have even been going on at that point. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know, (laughs) kiss was probably (laughs) existent. So, I don't know. I was just trying to get in a little bit of the contradictory elements of his personality. But and what's the Belfast Cowboy referring to That's either? Van Morrison is the Belfast oh, okay. Cowboy. So And Van Morrison was his hero, his favorite artist. And he emulated him quite a bit when he was singing. And although his voice sounded absolutely nothing like Van Morrison, he's, his voice sounded more like Muddy Waters. <laughs> but Van Morrison was his hero and he loved him. And so, I can't listen to Van Morrison or see Van Morrison play without thinking of Waymer you know so yeah, kind of what that's describing in that chorus is I'd seen maybe five or six years ago I saw Van Morrison at Jazz Fest and it just hit me when he was singing sometime during the show I just kind of lost it because I just started thinking about Waymer you know so that's what what that's about and it's strange
0: that you've got the it's the it's spirit of Van Morrison makes you think of your friend, and that leads directly to this long instrumental thing that doesn't sound anything like Van Morrison, but <laughs> yet has that sort of dreamy feel, I guess, you know, in terms of the general tone.
1: That whole ending was just an experiment. I thought, what if I came up with a chord progression that just goes on and on and doesn't make any sense or have any relationship to any key or anything? There's sort of a time signature. I mean, it, there's no click track or anything, but You know, it's in in basic time, I guess. But that was an experiment, and and I really liked the way it came out. (laughs) Well, I was trying to think, of you know, how that would compare to
0: merely playing a bunch of random chords for a long time. That at least this was premeditated so that the individual shifts would make sense, and you're not shifting keys constantly or something like that, as it would be if you just... I'm going to do unpredictable things on rhythm guitar.
1: (laughs) I think for the listener, it would be the same as if you just played random chords... And went on and on and on with it. But I wanted to be able to repeat the process. So I mapped it out ahead of time. Well, and just also since some of the individual gestures, as you
0: said, the one I think of as the most Floydian, the going down to the, I don't know, which like happens a couple times, but just it doesn't sound exactly the same, but at least things repeat a little bit. They do. Well, let's just for our last thing, we're going to turn completely away from that back toward a two minute and 18 second. Rock tune from the Young Fresh Fellows, another 10 reasons, but the revived version, 2012's
1: Tiempo de Lujo. So this is still the lineup that was on the last couple albums, right? It's the same lineup since 1989. We only had one personnel change ever, Chuck Carroll original guitar player left and we got Kurt Block in and it's been the same band for, you know, he's the new guy he's been in for 28 years. (laughs) So this was the last record we made we made it up at Kurt's house in his basement. And uh, then of course I did some overdubs down here in Portland, but this song is pretty much just a live raver you know just us thrashing out a song that i had a three chord song yeah right the whole album was cut in 12 hours is that right Right? probably if you added it up it's probably about that yeah not 12 hours in a row no i think we did all the basics in two sessions it is On a weekend, basically, at his house and and probably spent, you know, five or six hours a day. That's probably about right. (laughs) And then when you would do group vocals with this band because you've got multiple singers, is it still layering one at a time or do you sing together? Little Sometimes we sing together. You know, if there's backing vocals, we'll put two or three guys on a mic or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. I like to do that. That's fun. It's probably not always a time saver. <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily faster than doing them separately, but it's more fun.
0: Before researching this stuff, I'd heard a little I heard the Minus 5 eponymous album, but kind of thought that it was after the Young Fresh Fellows you were just playing with R.E.M., you're busy touring around with them for years and just had no idea that you had this much stuff, especially now hearing that I know you've got the baseball project, the last album that was between this last Young Crush Fellows and the stuff that we've been listening here. So you got three different bands going at the same time, plus you're still doing session work.
1: Yeah, I toured all last year with M. Ward, playing bass with M. Ward okay. uh, off and on all last year. That was great, but I did a lot of other stuff too. I made a record Alejandro, with Alejandro. Yeah, I made right? the record with Alejandro Escovedo, which, and I just toured with him all of January and, We just did some shows in Texas a couple weeks ago, and we're starting to write for his next record. Peter and Alejandro and I wrote that whole record together. So we're going to do another one with the three of us writing the songs and producing it. So I'm looking forward to that. I probably won't get recorded till next year, but we are sort of gathering material and we're going to get together and work on songs in August. So there's that. And then Peter and I have a New band with Corin Tucker from Sleater-Kinney. Oh, yeah. Called Filthy Friends, and that record's coming out in August, and we'll be doing some shows with that. Peter and I also started a band with a couple of Norwegian guys from a group called I Was a King. We're a fantastic band. I bet Ken probably knows them in some way or another, I'm guessing. But we've been writing songs and have an EP coming out in June, and they're coming here in Portland in June to record the full-length So yeah, there's no shortage. I'm probably forgetting some other ones, but I'm due for another Fellows and due for another Baseball Project record. I just want to keep them all going whenever there's time. It's just hard to find time for it all. And I've got tons of songs for a Minus 5 record, but I have no idea how I want to do it or what kind of record I want to make. I've actually been recording a whole bunch of Christmas songs the last month. (laughs) I started writing them to submit for the monkeys. The monkeys are doing a Christmas record. So I wanted to submit a song or two for that. And then I just got carried away (laughs) and I've recorded nine or ten Why not become a children's performer, too? Why not just finish out? It's definitely not a Christmas record for children. (laughs) That just couldn't happen. I'm trying to rein in my demonic instincts, but it's hard to keep them completely uh, subterfuge. Well, thanks so much for sharing this glimpse into your large output here. No problem. Thanks for listening to all this stuff. That must have been overwhelming.
0: (laughs) My pleasure. I love having you an excuse. All right. So another 10 reasons. Here it is. Thanks a lot. Cool. See you, man.
2: Molly can you help me now? Oh oh, Molly can you help me now? Oh, oh 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 oh, oh no Woke up again with the TV on, my brain was back into the rhythm of the flashing neon Dreams don't answer if they ever call, says the heart-shaped crimson stain in the summer snowfall for every misery molded fear Another ten reasons to disappear For every lie less real than desire Another ten reasons to stay required Oh, oh, Molly, can you help me now? Oh, oh, Molly, can you help me now? Oh, 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 oh no All crumpled up like a highway wreck On the cold black floor of a dying discotheque
0: Thanks to Scott. Man, that was another one of my favorite episodes yet. What a broad, stylistic range. Very smart guy. He's spontaneous in the way he approaches music, yet still has a lot to say about it. So you probably caught there at the end that in addition to the projects that I talked about in the intro, Scott also co-fronts the Baseball Project with my former guest, Steve Wynn. That band also features some folks from R.E.M., so I encourage you to check out their three albums. Plus, Scott was in the backing band for a while, The Venus 3, for one of my favorite artists of all time, Robin Hitchcock. I hope someday to talk to him. But i got to tell you, I've already recorded six more interviews, which I'm going to do my best to put up fairly rapidly and not wait two or three weeks between, though particularly during the summer, that sometimes just happens. Episode 50 will feature Anton Barbeau, 51 with Andy Powell of Wishbone Ash, 52 with Kim Rancourt, 53 with David Brookings, 54 with Khaki King, and 55 with Don Preston, my most elderly guest yet, he was a member of Frank Zappa's initial Mothers of Invention lineup. Now, one thing that would help motivate me to release all these episodes in a timely fashion and enabled me to get a lot more good interviews is knowing that I have your support. And the way to do that, new as of last episode, is to go to patreon.com slash Music. Now, I know we live in an internet culture where everything is free, but given the amount of preparation I do for these, for this to be sustainable long-term, this podcast needs to start supporting itself, so please... If you enjoy what you're hearing here and would like to continue, go make even a very small pledge. And if you become a supporter, I will be especially interested to hear your recommendations for who I should have next on the show. You can email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of your summer. I'll talk to you soon. Until next time, this is Mark linton signing off.